Um, that's a real joy. Um, we are two-thirds of the way through our series on our DNA, um, who we are and what we do. And this morning, we're looking at church as sacrificial and generous. And I always like just to tell you what the point is, so that if you don't follow me for the next 20 minutes, you've gone away remembering what this was all about. So to be sacrificial and generous is about learning what can happen with our stuff and ourselves when it's in God's hands. Because whose hands we are in changes everything. And if you don't believe me, just ask an Aston Villa fan about this season. Um, it's um, an interesting thing when we come to think about sacrifices um, in the story that we as church family inherit. This is a collection of family stories, of generations, of DNA, which replicates in different ways a common story from parent to child and parent to child. And what we saw this morning with Freya being dedicated, I think is a really nice jumping off point for us to think about the core question in generosity and sacrifice. Um, because we saw just earlier with Rich what it means for Freya to be given into the hands of the giving God. The question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is what could God do with me? And I've picked this passage of the Bible to answer that question for us. And it's an incredible passage, one of the turning points um, of the letter to the Christian gatherings in the city of Rome. It was written about 30 years after Jesus died. And it, it's a long meditation on the power of Christ's death and his subsequent resurrection for those people in Rome. But it's a bit like we flicked to the end of series eight of Friends, the one where Rachel has a baby. And for some of us who aren't avid followers, it might be worth getting a bit of the backstory on these family stories of sacrifice to make sense of what on earth Paul is talking about when he says living sacrifice. Because there are two things that seem to be true in all human societies and throughout all history, in every culture, time, and place, as far as we can tell. And that's gifts and rivalries. Uh, and for most of us, we learn about gifts and rivalries in our earliest context, that of our families. And we hear at All Saints, we're a family. And so we are learning and living with those tensions too. And we go to scripture to see about that first story of gifts and rivalry. I don't know how you would start the story of sacrifice to God if you are writing your instructions to God's people. I might start with something like Leviticus, you know, this is how you get it right. But the Bible in Genesis 4 tells us this is how it can go wrong. I don't know if you know the story of Cain and Abel. They were two brothers who um, went out and offered what they had to the Lord. It's a messy story because we don't know what Cain did wrong on the face of it. But Abel, his brother's sacrifice was good. God says, you haven't done well. And he wasn't pleased with Cain's. Cain is furious. He calls his brother out on some pretense and kills him. And God says, his blood cries out to me in spite of Cain's protestations. Am I my brother's keeper? What's Abel got to do with me? You see, his rivalry ruined his heart. 
And so sacrifice is that quest for us to find peace, right? Peace in ourselves, peace with those around us, and peace before God. At its heart, what it means to be generous and sacrificial is to know forgiveness. So we have that first line of the DNA, Cain and Abel, sacrifice gone wrong, rivalry and division. So the solution was a new line of that DNA. Adam and Eve, they had Seth, and all of his descendants formed the family stories that we read in the rest of Genesis up to that letter of Romans. And how does that story begin? Well, it's supposed to be different, but it looks like it's going down that same path all over again. Genesis 12, a man called Abram, son of Terah in the city of Ur with his wife and his livestock and his servants. God says to leave the comfort of this city Ur, probably the most developed city in the whole region, a nice place to be. Abram leaves that in search of the unknown in obedience to God because God promises him a line that will not be killed out, whose sacrifices will be acceptable before God. It will be different from those stories of division and competition. Abraham's certainty in that promise, it wavers. He's already a pretty old man. And so Abraham has a child by his own will with his wife's servant. And then 14 years later, at last, has the child of the promise through his wife, Sarah. So then we've got that division all over again. We've got Ishmael, the servant's uh, daughter, uh, the da- servant's son, and we've got Isaac, his wife's son. And the day that they come to dedicate and celebrate Isaac's life, Ishmael is there mocking. And so Abram casts out that son and his mum to the desert, left to die, but for the mercy of God who spares them. So now just Isaac remains, and God says, Isaac will be the one who keeps your line going who continues my promise to you. So let's imagine now the dinner table at this point in Genesis 18 or so. So we've got Abraham, Isaac, and the promised child sitting in apparent peace and happiness. But it's not a real peace, is it? Because out there in the desert, hidden away and unseen, is Ishmael and Hagar. Um, Abraham's tidied up his life. He's pretended like things are fine. He's, He's imagining as if he is offering up the right thing to God. And I wonder if we, in our own hearts, do a little bit of this, if we're honest. We tidy up our lives and make it look, on the outside, like it's all functioning right, like we're offering the right thing to God, our successful child, our blossoming career, all things that are great. But if it's only half the story of our lives, and it's the half that we're holding on to, I think we need to remember this next sacrifice that follows in this family story. Because in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, sacrifice Isaac, whom you love. Now, there's a whole load of things we can unpack about that statement. God never actually um, commands human sacrifice. Uh, And if you want meditations on that, you can read the existential Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. But for us this morning, I think what I want to, to draw out from us is I think the command, sacrifice Isaac, was doing this kind of work. I think God says to Abraham, give up your best son in the desert, just like you gave up your other son. Freely give away the thing that you're leaning on, just like you rushed 
to give away that thing that haunted you and embarrassed you. God doesn't let Abraham continue in his divided, unforgiving way. It didn't work with Cain and Abel, and it doesn't work here. God is looking for a way to renew Abraham's mind. So here's the heart of sacrifice, and I want us to hold on to this this morning. Sacrifice is something that God's commanded for his people to do, and it's a pretty visceral lesson. I don't know how many of you have killed animals recently. But by sacrifice, God says this, take what I've made, what's living and whole, and see how in your own hands it becomes divided and lifeless. And God says, take that lifeless and divided thing, put it in my hands, and see what I will do. Because as soon as we claim something as holy as, completely in our hands, we're unable to properly steward it. We kill it. Go and look at the houseplants in my lounge. But as soon as we place it back in the Lord's hands where it belongs, it lives. For the claim of the Christian faith that's found in that last line of Romans 11 that we read says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. So let's go back to that moment. So God has said to Abraham, sacrifice Isaac, whom you love. They've set out on their journey. They're going up the hill. What's happening? Well, Abraham finally places this promised son, the one who was going to keep his generations going, up on the altar. He gave him away just as he gave away Ishmael. And only then, at this point, does the gift of the ram appear, wrapped in thorns, which is placed on the altar instead. Isaac does not have to die to this boy, this brother, this promise. He becomes a living sacrifice. At last, in this family, through this boy, Abraham comes to understand that we are made right by faith. That faith calls us to hand something over as our possession and receive it back into our hands as God's gift. That's what happened up on Mount Moriah. Abraham gave away his son as his possession and got Isaac back into his hands truly as gift. And somehow this redeeming moment changes everything for this family and for humanity. This moment echoes down in ever greater waves through the generations until eventually it crashes on the shore of Lake Tiberias in the Roman province of Syria some 55 generations later. For then, at last, there was an oldest son in whose hands things were made beautiful. He worked with wood and stone, but most especially, he seemed to work with the human heart. And the strangest thing was that whenever he took things into his hands and divided them up, there wasn't that lifeless thing that spoke of human sin. There seemed to be, instead, a boundless generosity that spoke of God, he took divisions into his hands, broke them open, and they lived. And you can read all about the way this special son handles family divisions and money in the long sweep of Luke 12 to 19. And that's a footnote for another time. But I think the second most amazing thing that he took into his hands and divided was a little boy's lunch. It's a story you may know. Uh, And I'm sure Nat and Claire have prepared the most wonderful spread for all the friends and family that have come. I am convinced you're not going to go hungry, but imagine if 
you arrived uh, from here and already thinking about food, I can see you're already hungry. And imagine if there wasn't food enough for five, or imagine if there's actually 50 guests, or 500, no, 5,000 ravenous guests and their boyfriends, dogs, and neighbors, and they've got nothing to eat. Now, I remember this story, the feeding of the 5,000, like I was there. Because in a way, I, I kind of was. Um, I was a 10-year-old boy on a school trip. And I don't know if you've ever seen these reenactments of Jesus' life. They can be really powerful. Um, it was on this kind of outdoor estate. And we spent the kind of day as a school trip at that little party, wandering around the birth, growing up, the life, the death, and the resurrection, the whole story. But for some reason, the moment that seared in my memory as a 10-year-old boy sitting next to my friends, Jack, Lawrence, um, and Tom, is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, we, we in the crowd sat there, and these disciples came past with baskets of bread, and they handed it to us. And I was like, really? I've broken the fourth wall. I get to eat bread from the miracle there? And it's, it stayed with me forever. Because what I saw was a little boy give into Jesus' hands a small amount of bread and fish. And what that boy did is he said, this is just my lunch, but I want you to have it. I don't know how it's possibly going to solve it, but I feel that I ought to give it to you. And I wonder, what did that boy get back? Five loaves and two fish. Did he get back more or less than he gave? Well, whatever he got back, I think it was enough. How many others had food tucked away, do you think, on that hillside? Because there were two miracles, really, weren't there, at the feeding of the 5,000. The miracle of the stuff in front of Jesus, the food for everyone, and the miracle of the heart, the boy that stepped forward and said, these are my brothers and sisters in faith, in need. That little boy stood up and he reversed that cry of Cain. Cain who said, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, this little boy said, I, it's my responsibility, I am my brother and sister's keeper. There's no longer rivalry, but we are held in common. Generosity is that beautiful antidote to rivalry. And this story of these incredible hands is what Paul is reflecting on here in our passage, Romans 11 and 12. And so I hope I've kind of caught us up to where we are for those that don't know the story. Because Paul is reflecting on the real divide of these people in the city of Rome between the line of Isaac and the other lines who are gathering together in worship. And the reason that Paul's writing this letter, he's got a passion, is because Paul has been changed in Jesus' hands too. No longer the great divider, Paul has become the great uniter of these two lines, of Isaac's line and the other lines. And you can read about this in the speeches he gives in Acts. He writes about it in his letter to the Galatians and um, the Philippians. Because now Paul is in Jesus' hands, he can see what those hands can do. Paul says Jesus' hands control everything. And they will make each of our bodies, our bodies which are blemished, imperfect, but made for relationship with God, he will make them like his glorious body, Philippians 3.21. Because in Christ's hands, we can be held forever. In his hands, our momentary lunches can become landmark feasts. I wonder if you've ever done this thought experiment before. 
what was Paul, with all his gifts and talents, like before he knew Jesus? We can read about that um, in Philippians 3 and, and Galatians 1. He's got a brilliant mind and a zeal for the Lord. I'm sure he was working tirelessly. I'm sure he's written reams and reams of work. But the mark that he left then faded within his lifetime. But once he followed Jesus, Paul's gifts and offerings have lasted far longer than he could have ever imagined. His letters have been breathed on by God and they're part of the Holy Scriptures. And there is one great mystery, the best thing that Jesus ever took into his hands, that is the riches that Paul proclaims in his passage. That in Christ's outstretched arms on the cross, he finally reconciled those two divided lines. And we know this because three days later, he rose from the dead and stands as the permanent living sacrifice who brings us peace. The peace that those prophets so distantly proclaimed six centuries before, that the islands and coastlands would come into God's house, has been achieved. In Ephesians, Paul says, Christ himself is our peace, who has made these two groups one. It's Paul's decade of evangelistic efforts in Europe that's the reason that 99% of us are sat here this morning. So that's, that's the DNA of sacrifice. That's the offer of generosity. And I think there are, there are two ways that this kind of moves forward and that I want us to think about this morning. The first is, how do we receive it? And the second is, what do we do? So how do we receive this richness of this sacrifice? Well, it's by God's spirit. Um, I first responded to God's sacrifice 18 years ago as a teenager in a field um, in the Royal Bath showground, um, some place that some of us uh, in church family like to go every now and again. Um, and I had a dramatic moment of receiving God's spirit into me. Now, some of us may not be churchgoers and your, your concern is, well, I think, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit like that when you become a Christian, it's a bit like losing your mind. I've seen Borat. I know how it works. But actually, we see here in Romans 12, it's the renewing of the mind for a, what in the Greek is a logical, logical offering, a true and proper, I think the NIV has, or reasonable. Because what the Holy Spirit does, it renews our mind from that two-dimensional lines of gift and rivalry to the three-dimensional life of the loving Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because when we live in the forgiving life of this holy love, it transforms our body and our being into something which speaks of God. That's that same word, you know, true and proper, rational. It also means a speaking offering. And so what we have, it speaks of God. It's rational, spiritual, and pure. So for that moment for me, when I received God's Holy Spirit, when I was completely changed, I had lost my mind. I'd been given God's rationality. I could know for the first time and discern what was God's will. And that's what we see there in Romans 12, verse 2. Um, so we have those series of questions when Paul cries out, oh, the depths of the riches. There's a series of questions. And one is, how could we know the mind of the Lord? That was the question for me before I was a Christian. How on earth 
can I know what God wants? How can I avoid being like Cain, who goes in and then just embarrasses himself and falls short and doesn't do what's pleasing? But Paul tells the Christians in Corinth when he says, who could discern, who could know the mind of God? He says, we have the spirit. And so therefore we have the mind of Christ. The generousness of God is the renewing of our minds so that we have that same mind of that oldest son with beautiful hands. So together, collectively, we at All Saints have been given that mind to use our hands just as beautifully as he did. So then what is the heart of generosity? What do I do? Well, the good news is it's the opposite of sacrifice. It's the command to the disciples at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. I don't know if you remember it. God says, I'm giving you what's already been divided and broken up and fragmented and out there. Just go and gather it up. For when you share my mind and follow in obedience, you'll see that there's always been enough for the need and even more than enough. Generosity is the act of forgiven people, ministering, bringing together, making whole. If you remember the story of the woman who'd been forgiven, who came to Jesus' feet and was crying and anointing his feet with her tears. Simon the Pharisee in the room, he was a bit embarrassed and taken aback and thought, this is so wrong, Jesus, won't you condemn her? But Jesus says, those who've been forgiven much, they love much. Generosity says, my given out fragment is enough because all those fragments are being made whole at the foot of Jesus. The generous giver says, I want to intertwine my life with the lives and hearts of others because there is no meaningful separation between me and my neighbor, my family, my brothers and sisters at church. Generosity is joyfully discerning the way in which we are gifts. We have gifts and which we discover the gifts around us in community. We still live in this world patterned by its gifts and rivalries. Freya will grow up this morning, having been dedicated to God, still in the world with its knots and its delights. But our prayer for her and for us is that we would be held in Christ's hands, sharing Christ's mind, to find that our fragments collected in together go far further than we would ever have imagined. For together as church, we have hands made beautiful, to minister to hungry mouths, broken hearts, and far-off children. Amen. So shall we stand as the band come up? Families are messy. The story of family sacrifice through the Bible is messy. But I wonder this morning if you just need to receive that word of peace. From Romans 12. I think there are some people who feel ashamed of a messy side that you've portioned off or you've hidden in the desert and you feel that church is about coming to make it look tidy. It's not. Church is where you come to offer up all of yourself into Christ's hands.
wonder if some of you need to know that you're held, really held in those beautiful hands. Come, Holy Spirit. God is in the business of seeing your heart and healing it. And where there's brokenness of our own making or has been done to us, He still wants to come close. He wants to offer the oil of love. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, pour out your love into our hearts. Come Holy Spirit and bring together our fragments. Make us whole. Show us that there's so much more of you than we'd ever imagine. You don't need anything. You want to know us. Should we respond by singing?